Please be seated. Well, today we're celebrating as the church All Saints Sunday, and we're celebrating uh, as All Saints Sunday both kind of a combination of All Saints Day and All Souls Day. Um, All Saints Day falls on November 1st, which this year was a Thursday, All Souls Day on the 2nd. Um, And All Saints Day celebrates all of those that have gone before us that we don't know. A lot of people are confused about this. They think that, you know, it's um, all of the other saints that we do know. But there's so many that have gone before us in the great cloud of witnesses that we don't know. Those that had exemplary lives. Those who praised God in their own time. Those who died for the faith. Those who lived for the faith. Those who sacrificed for the faith. um, And are unknown to us from the pages of history. All Souls Day, the second part of the celebration, is more formally known as the um, commemoration of the faithfully departed. Now, who are the faithfully departed? Those are those folks who lived faithful Christian lives in their time and, and brought the faith down to us but aren't necessarily saints. They're just, as we sung, folk just like you and me, little s saints, of course, but not necessarily big s saints, not necessarily those who went above and beyond with exemplary deeds or words. So when we celebrate All Souls Day, we're looking at those faithfully departed, those Christians that have gone before us, those in this congregation that have gone before us, those in our families who have gone before us, and those that have gone before us whose lives also are unknown to the pages of history. I find that oftentimes with death, Christians in this country, sadly, are very much mistaken as to what goes on with death. We go to funeral homes And I suggest that so often our theology is what I call funeral parlor theology, right? That just everybody kind of flits away and goes off to heaven and they play their harps and, you know, one day, someday we'll we'll see them again. And we live in these, these, these sentimental, well, I'll just say it, sentimental claptrap this garbage theology um, that actually has no hope in it when it comes to it. It actually has no hope in it. Death is a formidable enemy. To just slough death off, to just say that it's a natural part of life, misses the point. Christ came to defeat death. Christ came to be victorious over death, to trample it under his feet, as we say every week in our liturgy. And I want to read to you one of the colics from the burial service because I find it to be deeply profound. Now, see how many scriptures you can pick out of this prayer. 
merciful God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, who in whom whoever believeth shall live, though he die, and whoever liveth and believeth in him shall not die eternally, who also hath taught us by his holy apostle St. Paul not to be sorry as men without hope for those who sleep in him. We humbly beseech thee, O Father, to raise us from death of sin into the life of righteousness. Let's stop right there. What's the first thing we're thankful for and we're, we're beseeching God for? It's not physical death at all. It's spiritual death. To raise us from the death of sin to the life of righteousness. That when we shall depart this life, we may rest in him. And that at the general resurrection at the last day, we may be found acceptable in thy sight and receive that blessing which thy well-beloved Son shall then pronounce to all those who love and fear thee, saying, Come ye, blessed children of my Father, receive the kingdom prepared for you from the beginning of the world. Grant this, we beseech thee, O merciful Father, through Jesus Christ, our mediator and redeemer. Amen. Do you see... Our prayers teach us because so often our feelings are wrong. <laughs> and so often our culture is wrong. The prayer book is so important. Did you catch what's going on here? It's not just this flitting of way of the human soul. It's this idea that the soul will once again be reunited with the body at the, general at the general resurrection, which should make you question, what then is the general resurrection? The general resurrection is that which Jesus talks about at the end of all time, the dead shall be raised, both the sheep and the goats, both those who have followed Christ and those who have renounced him in their life. And they'll be judged. And those that have done right, those who have walked in trust in our Lord Jesus Christ, whose sins are forgiven by his sacrifice on the cross, will be bidden, come, come with me. Come to the place that I've prepared for you from the beginning of time. And that place isn't some ethereal, ghostly place, but Revelation tells us it's a new creation. It is physical, not in the same way this is physical, but just as we saw Jesus in John 20 raised from the dead and with a body and eating and drinking with, with the apostles, so shall we be raised from the dead physically. Physically. Your body matters. God created you with a body. Um, I know I'm, I'm getting into liturgics here, but I can't help myself. Why is it that in the Anglican tradition, we always have the body at a funeral? If not the body itself, then the cremains, right? The, the, uh, the, the burned up body. Why do we do that? Because the body matters. We commend back to the earth that which was given. Thou art from dust, and to dust thou shalt return. But that's not the end of the story. From that dust 
you'll be resurrected and we will live together, body and soul, reunited eternally in the new heaven and the new earth. Look what St. Paul says. We're not going to go through this passage methodically today, but look what he says. There's three principal sections in chapter 15. The first is a declaration of faith. Now, would I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What is that? This is like a proto-creed. Verse 3, For I delivered to you of the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He goes on to talk about his own apostleship. But do you see the proto-creed here? Second, he goes to talking about what are the fruits of the resurrection. Look at verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Wow. Paul's being his typical Pauline self here, saying, look, If this isn't true in its entirety, you're wasting your time. And to Christians, to those, let me be careful with my wording, to those who attend church today, let me say this. If you don't affirm these four things at the very least, and you're coming to church thinking it's making you a better person, or that it's a good place to make friends, or that, you know... That's what good people do. You're wasting your time. Because St. Paul says that. Your faith is in vain. Don't bother. There's no point to having a faith that thinks happy thoughts. There's no point to having a faith that, that just gives you good morality. Either Christ died for your sins, rose again, and you believe that one day you will die and rise again, both spiritually and physically, don't bother. Now, look around you. How many shades of that vapid, milk toast faith do we see around us? And I'm not saying judge, judge other people. I'm just saying, look around you at the state of Christianity, whether it's in mainline churches or anywhere. So many people are wasting their time. So many people are going through a lot of motions, whether it's high church with incense, you know, setting the church on fire, um, or, or whether it's low church, you know, with the hour and a half sermons that are verbose and impressive, or, or whether it's with PowerPoints and, you know, laser light shows and whatever. Waste of time if you don't have this. But thank God, that's not the faith 
of Christianity. Verse 20, if in fact, but if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as an Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. What's he saying? This is an exclusive comment. It's only in Christ Jesus that all can be made alive. That's the exclusivity of the faith. But the inclusivity of the faith is this, that that's offered to everybody. There's one way, but it's open to all. Verse 22 or verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So what's that saying? Christ, the first fruits. Well, Jesus has put his money where his mouth is, so to speak. Do you want to see that this is true? Look at John 20. Go with St. Thomas, the doubter, and know that someone stuck his fingers into Christ's new body's hands where the nails were, and touched the wound in his side. He is the first fruits. He's proved it. And so we hang our hat on that. Our whole faith depends upon that. Otherwise, St. Paul says, we're the most to be pitied. Not only is your faith worthless, but you're buying a lie. And you're misrepresenting God. He continues, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put into subjection, it's plain that he's accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be in all, all in all. What's he saying there? That death itself is conquered by Christ. We have a tradition at this congregation to put these vigil lights up on the reredos. That's the thing behind the altar, the shelf there. Um, to symbolize the fact that on the other side of that altar are those that have gone before us, both the saints and the faithfully departed. There are those who are asleep waiting for the general resurrection, but there are also those awake on the other side of the table Revelation talks about the saints and the martyrs crying out, How long, O Lord? They're those who wait for us. And this life isn't the principal life you should be concerned about, but the next one. Look what Paul says, verse 29. Now, there's some bizarre stuff going on here with the Corinthian church in verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, 
Why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, but my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What, I, what do I gain? If, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some of you have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. What's he saying here? Well, the baptism of the dead thing's like a weird thing. Scholars are confused about that. No one's quite sure. There's a thought that there were those who had um, accepted Christ but had never been baptized. And so there were those that kind of subbed in as proxy to be baptized for them because they believed but they hadn't been baptized. Um, we can talk about that more in a theology class at some point. Uh, but Paul's main point here is what? That this belief, this way of living life, this practice of how we live life, not in a drunken stupor, in a sinful stupor, but as people that are awake to the reality, is to inform how we walk with Christ. You see, empty belief is not enough. Just as that light faith is not enough. Because Christ has covered everything. And you're either all in or you're not in at all. Now, I don't want to make it sound like it's of our own efforts. I want to be careful when I say that. It's not that we work our way to salvation. Christ has made this way. But we do control how we live. So ask yourself, going forth today, am I living with the right priorities in light of the right creation in mind? What affects my choices more? What I see here and what I experience around me or what I find in God's eternal word? and what I look to with certainty. Do I look to it with certainty? Right? How does my life reflect my belief in Christ? And where do I stand? Where do I stand? Am I just going through the motions? When someday the casket is my own, where will I be? Where will I be? I pray, friends, that we not just initially believe in Christ, but that we put our full trust in Him, our full hope in Him, in His death, resurrection, and that you might know for certainty that when you die, that's not the end but you'll be raised again in body and reunited with those that you love who've gone before you and glorify God for eternity in body and in soul.
happy All Saints and All Souls Day. May we take it to heart. Amen.